back in 1920 papyrus p52 was found it is the oldest manuscript copy of a fragment of the new testament it's about the size of a stamp has three verses on one side and two verses on the other side it's dated to about 100 AD, which is pretty amazing because the Apostle John died in 95 AD. So it's it's a copy of a copy of an original letter of the Apostle. And I'll read what's on the front side, which is John 18. Pilate said to them, take yourselves, judge him by your own law. We have no right to execute anyone, they objective. This took place to fulfill what kind of death that Jesus was going to die. Pilate then said back inside his palace, summoning Jesus, are you the king of the Judeans? We'll see what's on the backside here in just a moment. Clifton Yoder shares about a study, first century religions, and what people believed at that time, the time when you get to the Apostle Paul in 40, 50 AD. 51% worshipped the god Jupiter. 30% worshipped Zeus. 9% worshipped Mithra. That left less than 1% of people at that time, there were Christians. But that's all going to radically change in this world that was hostile to this new belief, this faith in Christ, as they're about to turn the world upside down. But let's see some new role models today and some principles you and I can take and put into practice today to see our lives transformed and to live more like Christ. And, and some of the role models we'll see from history as well as current times. But think about this time period, 99% of the people you know, have this belief in these false gods. It was also a time in that first century, which was often very violent. You look back at the time of the Apostle Paul, Caligula, you know, he arrives on the scene at the same time. He is the, the Roman emperor. He's this terrible, wicked person. He's evil. He executes people for fun. You often see statues with him and his horse because he elevated his horse to a government position and he claimed that the horse could you know communicate all kinds of weird things this tremendous evil man with all this power eventually was executed by his own guard but something interesting about Caligula whenever there was a thunderstorm he was terrified and he would hide under his bed so all that power and prestige up front but left to himself he was this man that was that was very terrified but he did terrible things in that first century but in that first century the church continued to grow at this rapid rate you get to 165 AD Justin Martyr he's executed for his faith and at his trial he has this to say I am too little to say something great of him you know such a, a great example of somebody just the humility I'm too little to say something great of Christ. He wouldn't even, you know, try to defend his faith. He just said, he is my life. So let's look at something here from an example, a principle you and I can put into place to serve that one who is the awesome living Christ, the risen one. First Samuel chapter one, we'll start in verse three. You don't really need to remember this man's name, but it's it's the, the wife that's going to stand out. But we're told Elkanah, went up from the city every year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. He had two wives. One was named Hannah. Hannah's going to become one of the most important people in all of history. We'll see why here in just a moment. His second wife is named Penina. Now notice what happens next. Penina had children. Hannah had none. Penina provoked Hannah severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So Penina... Where is she doing this at? They're at the temple. They're worshiping. And Penina, for no reason other than cruelty, mocks Hannah, 
Makes her life miserable. Well, who is she representing? Penina represents the role of the adversary. You know, that he always brings these problems into our life, and he's there to try to discourage people, to mock people, to provoke people, to see people miserable. We're going to see what Hannah did to overcome this. The same thing you and I can do to overcome the Penina in our life. You know, Giddings International, their mission statement says the Bible contains the mind of God. We would agree full-heartedly with that, that the Bible contains the mind of God, that what Jesus intended to be written, his word, Old Testament, written by the prophets, New Testament, written by the apostles. And as we understand the mind of God, we take scripture, understand it, apply it to life. We live life then in a different level. What happens next in 1 Samuel chapter 1? Again, back to 3 through 10, we're told this. It was year by year she went to the house of the Lord, but Penina provoked her. Hannah wept and did not eat. This is year by year. So Hannah, she has no children, but she continues to worship. And every time she goes to the temple, year after year, there's Penina to mock, to try to make her miserable. There might be some here today that understand that well, that there might be something you've been facing that's been going on year after year, and the discouragement, the enemy trying to make life miserable. You're going to see again what Hannah did to finally change that. We're told in the next verse that Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept. We're always called to pray at all times. But her prayers at that level were not changing what Penina was doing. We're going to see what she did next as you and I can also do today. Frederick Bastiat, French author in the 1800s says, God has given to all men all that is necessary for them to accomplish their dreams. So we have the inheritance in Christ to live in that victory. We have the promises in Christ. We have scripture to know the mind of Christ and to live above the Peninas. Well, let's talk about some things in history and how they impact the world today and some ways people have shown what it is to know the promise of Christ versus those who reject that promise. Consider, you know, Karl Marx, the 1800s, he famously said, religion is the opium of the people. You know, why did he say that? First of all, he said it because he was an atheist, but second of all, he didn't want people to have hope. He thought that hope would stop people from taking their responsibility today. So if you had hope for the future or hope for eternity, he said that was distracting you from working today for the community that you are in. Now, was Marx this atheist, this man who didn't believe in hope? What kind of life did he live? It's clear from history. He was massively depressed. He was tremendously broken inside. He was in abject poverty, so much so that when his child died, he wouldn't pay for the funeral, couldn't pay for the funeral. His wife had to beg on the street, you know, for somebody to please help pay for their child's funeral. But you move past Marx into the 20th century, the man who sought to impose Marx's ideas was Lenin in Russia. And Lenin said this, every idea of God is unutterable vileness. 
He didn't want people to believe in God. You were to, to just be obedient to him. And if you had a obedience to God, that was taking away his control. Now, how did he try to implement this idea of getting rid of God in Russia? Well, churches were closed. Christians were not allowed to teach in public schools. Some were sent to a mental hospital, prison, others concentration camps. Estimated three million people that he had executed. Let's see what the lesson was learned from that. But first, what's on the backside of that papyrus from 100 AD? There's two verses on the back, also from John 18. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say, I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate says the words we all know, what is truth? The reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. You see, we're living in a time where, where people are asking like Pilate, you know, what is the truth? What is the answer? Maybe it's an individual problem as much as maybe some problems we see in the culture at large, and you know, maybe it's that penina in your life, and to hear the promise, and to know the promise, and experience it today, I'll show you some ways that Hannah availed of that, but resting in the words of Christ to say, we serve the one who was born, came into this world, he testified to the truth, and in that truth, he's promised me a, a different inheritance, a daily life where I'm an overcomer in him. Alexander Solnetsin spent eight years hard labor in Russia for criticizing Stalin. When he was released, he became this author and this speaker. He made one of the most important speeches, you know, in the last few decades. He gave the speech in 1983 Listen to the words that he said. I have spent 50 years on the history of the revolution. I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of testimonies, have contributed volumes of my own toward the effort to clear away the rubble left by that upheaval. If I were asked today the main cause of that ruinous revolution that swallowed up 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat men have forgotten God. That is why all of this has happened. Things in our world today, people have forgotten the promises of Christ. They've forgotten God and they've moved into this life of just putting self on the throne and the selfishness there. And maybe they've been defeated, and maybe I have wrestled with the peninas in life. And again, we're saying, you know, like Pilate, what is the truth? And Jesus says, I testify to this. I've brought truth into the world so that you and I can live again at a different level. So if you go back to what happens, 1 Samuel 10, we're told what happens next. Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then... She made a vow. 
she made a vow. She's about to claim her inheritance, but this is not an everyday type of prayer. This is not an everyday type of commitment, but she does do something at a different level to get a different type of prayer, to see a different type of answer, and you and I can do that as well today. She made a vow. And her vow is she's going to go into the temple and she's going to pray, God, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to you all the days of his life. Now, your vow and my vow, if that's something that you and I are committed to today to see that breakthrough we want, you know, it's going to be an individual vow. You know, many people, scripture is clear, you don't make a vow and you do it lightheartedly and then not follow through. There's a consequence to that. In fact, as John Eckhart shares, one of the most powerful things you can do is make a vow to God and keep it. When your prayers become a vow back to God to bless him with what he gives you, you arrive at the place where a breakthrough is inevitable. But it's not something to enter into lightly. You know, a lot of people say something like, God, you know, give me this financial breakthrough and I vow to give money to, you know, charity. And then they get the financial breakthrough and they don't follow through. They keep all the money. It's a a very common thing. We want to be uncommon people. If you're a vow, it might be a financial vow. It might be a vow to step out in faith into a new ministry. It might be a vow to dedicate your time. It might be a vow to commit to prayer. Whatever it is, if you've been facing a panaya and it's been year after year after year, maybe week after week, it might be time to say along with that prayer, Lord, bring this to fruition. And this is my vow in return. But everybody has to choose what that individual vow would be for their life. But it's not something again to enter into on a day-to-day basis. This is something to do at that moment of deep commitment where you intend to keep whatever vow it is that you make. Now, when she makes that vow, what happens? First Samuel 1 Verse 20, it came to pass that Hannah conceived, bore a son. She called his name Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. The word Samuel means God has heard. So this is why Hannah is one of the most important people in scripture and in history. It's her prayer. It's her vow. She's blessed. She has a spiritual breakthrough. She gives birth to Samuel. Samuel is one of the greatest prophets and leaders of all time. He's the one that led Israel for some time before he would anoint Saul. And then more importantly, he would anoint King David to be the true king. So Samuel is the one that's birthed. And so as John Eckhart shares, Maybe a prayer to begin to declare on a daily basis is this. My Samuel is coming forth. You know, whatever it is that Penina has been stopping you, if you're at that place of prayer ready to say, here's my vow, God, then in faith begin to speak and say, my Samuel is coming forth. Let's look at a second example of somebody in Scripture, another principle. So if a vow is something you're ready to make, and not everybody's going to be ready to make it, but if that's a place at the breakthrough you're looking to see, you might be in a place to say, I do know the vow I want to make. Here's another principle from another person in Scripture, First Kings, that you and I can implement today. We're told this, while in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, ask what you want from me. I love this from Randall McCarty. He says, we must See it, say it, and seize it. What does it mean to to see it? It's to see a goal 
that God has given you, given me. Many times it's, it's hard to see things clearly because the enemy attacks our ability to really perceive things. But see it clearly, then to say it. Say out loud what you believe, but so many, they don't know what they believe, especially in this day and age. And then lastly, to seize it. Use your authority, the power God's invested in you to claim the promise. As Randall McCarty says, this is what separates the concerned from the committed. There's a lot of people concerned, concerned about their own lives, concerned about the broader culture, but there's a difference between concerned and committed. Somebody that's committed says, I see it and I say it and I seize it because he has entered into this world to reveal the truth. Here's another person that's impacting the world today. David Hume, a skeptic, a philosopher, a writer, teacher back in the 1700s. If you wonder about people today that constantly rearrange, redefine, claim nothing's true, want to say what used to be true is no longer true, and there's all this confusion in, in you know, college universities, a lot of it's David Hume, a philosopher better known as a skeptic, basically taught, you know, nobody can really know that anything's true. And what did Jesus say? I've come into this world to bring truth. And Hume said, nobody can really know if God exists or not. How do you know it's right or wrong? We can't really say. I love this by Clark Pinnock. He said, you know, skepticism, that's a nice game to play, but there's no way one can live on the basis of it. You know, it's easy to, to be a, a well-to-do professor for some time and talk about things as not true and just philosophize and change definitions like Hume did. But again, when the rubber hits the road, what happened? On his deathbed, people there, quote, said he was in unutterable gloom. And he stated at his deathbed, I'd been searching for the light all my life, but now I'm in greater darkness than ever. It's time to step out of that darkness of this time in the world where people are so confused about what is truth and to be the example and say, let me tell you about the one who entered into this life that you and I might know that truth and be set free. Now, Solomon's asked what it is that you want. First Kings 3, we all know the answer. Verse 5, he says, give your servant wisdom. But if you go to verse 4, before his prayer for wisdom, here's the key. We're told the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, and he offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Before Solomon asked for that prayer, what does he do? He makes this massive offering. It cost him dearly. That offering could be something, again, maybe it's a financial offering to a ministry that you support or a charity you care about, or it might be an offering of making the commitment now before you see that prayer in your time. It may be stepping out in faith to, to start working in a ministry now that you're called to and saying, I'm making this sacrifice to do this because I believe that God is going to bring an answer to an even greater prayer. But there's a time where an un common offering is needed to be made of our life to see that breakthrough. As John Eckhart says, too many want to give where there's no physical or spiritual exertion or no hardship, no sacrifice. But there is a realm we need to go in our giving where we are more purposeful and challenged to give more in order to receive an unusual level of blessing and breakthrough. Here's the key in scripture. Receiving is linked to giving. Jesus said, give 
and it'll be given to you. With the measure you use, it's going to be measured unto you. So if you and I want to receive love, we have to give more love. If we want to receive more forgiveness, we have to give forgiveness. If we want to receive patience, we have to be givers of patience. What you want to receive, that's what you first need to give. And there's a time of uncommon giving that may may not be a financial one, but whatever it is that you're knowing God is calling you to that's going to cost you something. There's a time where you need a certain breakthrough that you step up at a different level and say, in faith, I make this sacrifice. Give an example. I had a couple a few years back, you know, they showed up and they were on their way to the divorce court and they, they wanted some counseling. One had been unfaithful and I worked with them, but I knew they needed to get away. They needed to get away from family and friends and all these voices. And I said to them, I believe your marriage can be saved, but you need to to get away. Just the two of you, there's a a retreat center down in Florida. They will counsel you. You can spend 24 hours a day for seven days focusing on your relationship and healing and counseling. And their answer or their question, like so many to me, I'm sure you've all heard it as well. You know, their question back was, well, how much does that cost? And they weren't willing to pay that price. They ended up divorced. And too often we stop and say, you know what, I can see the, the breakthroughs there, but how much is that going to cost? And that's the wrong answer. Wrong question. We need to say, what is it that I'm willing to offer to see that breakthrough? Bill Roy said, one day while watching the news, I saw a pitiful scene of a woman clutching an infant who was starving to death, and I lamented, God, if you're a loving, compassionate God, how can you allow this? Suddenly, a mental image of a tearful God cradling the mother and child looked at me and said, if you are my disciple, how can you allow this? We are called to make the difference in this world. We're called to be that inspiration, that role model to others that they might know he's entered in to bring truth. Consider Martin of Tours back in the 300s, a Roman soldier. He was riding his horse back to the barracks. He passed this poor man that asked for food, and Martin said, I don't have any food, but it was snowing. This man's freezing. So Martin, there's a lot of pictures painted of this moment, tore his robe in two and wrapped half of it around this man so he wouldn't freeze to death. And Martin went home that night, went to sleep, had a dream. He saw the throne of God and these angels worshiping. And then he saw Jesus with a robe. And one of the angels said, Jesus, where'd you get that robe? And Jesus said, from my servant, Martin. And Martin of Tours' friend said when he woke from that dream, he ran to be baptized. There's a different life when we live in the promise and in the truth. What happens to Hannah? Second Samuel, we're told this. After Samuel's born, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My mouth is bold against my enemies. There's no rock like our God. When you see, when you experience, when you know that type of breakthrough like Hannah, at one point she was weeping and broken and miserable. Now she's seen the breakthrough. Her faith is increased and she says, My mouth is bold against the enemy. There's no rock like our God. A whole different world of life when we live it in a place of that victory that we're promised as our inheritance in Christ. Consider Kathy Buckley. As a child, she was tortured in every possible way you can imagine. She also was hearing impaired, so she was given a very difficult time at school because they thought she just couldn't keep up. Miserable life. 
Finally, she was able to get away from all this misery and this abuse when she was a teenager and she was at the beach and a man was driving a, a Jeep across the sand. She's lying on the ground. She doesn't hear the Jeep. He doesn't see her. And he ran her over, broke her back. She'd spent five years in a wheelchair. What do you think she does, though, for a living today after all that pain and suffering? Well, she is a comedian. She's a Christian. She shared one day, here's what changed her life. She was giving a, a comedy show at the Kennedy Center when she met a woman named Ruth Mercer. Ruth Mercer, a quadriplegic. And as she told some jokes, and Ruth Mercer, she could tell, was you know, trying to laugh, but Ruth Mercer could not really communicate other than she found out by blinking her eyes. And her assistant explained this to Kathy Buckley. And they had designed this technology with a screen that Ruth Mercer could blink at a letter and it would type that letter. And she could blink at A and type A, blink at B, it would type B. And Kathy Buckley shared, you know, just a, a great time sharing with her. And Ruth, while Kathy was out on stage giving her act, she came back and Ruth had typed out by blinking her eyes a, a letter for Kathy. And here's the letter that Ruth typed out. Thank you so much for making me laugh, but more than anything else, thank you for treating me as an equal to anyone else. You know, Ruth Mercer wrote a best-selling book, and just an incredible story. She passed away a few years ago, but it's a different life when you live in that place of knowing the one who entered in to bring truth. I close with this. Kathy Buckley shared it. Ruth Mercer impacted thousands of lives and all she could do was blink her eyes. What is your excuse?